dirt road in a gooseneck saddle up with me dry land in god's country crops far as i can see the headlights on both ends of my day this country Hey, welcome folks to HPJ Talk, the podcast from High Plains Journal, bringing the ag news and commentary of the week to you. I'm Jennifer Amlatsky, and I'm joined as always by my colleague, Kayleen Scott. Hey there, Kayleen. Hey, Jenny. Well, how's your week been? Oh, it's going. So we've got the kids going back to school. There's a back to school plan. How, how's everything, uh, you know, you guys have made a decision to send the kids to school. So tell us about it, Dodge City and everything, you know, what's, what's going on? A few weeks ago, they sent out a a survey wanting to know, you know, if you intended on sending your kids face to face or if you're going to do virtual and I filled that out before I filled it out, I called my husband, which I already knew the answer to what my question and was going to be and he's like why are you even calling me I'm like just to make sure we're on the same page and that was if we're wanting to send the kids to school which they need to go back to school they need to be socially interaction with everybody and it's been five months I mean it's time for them to go back and so they're enrolled to go back face to face and they had a school board meeting I believe on Monday that talked about the the regulations I wasn't I don't know if I've seen the results from their meeting but I know they have to wear masks and they have to social distance and there's different things that rules they have to follow and I've kind of been trying to talk to them about it and I guess I should go find some masks for them to wear <laughs> or, so or I, find a tutorial and make some I saw a really great um a really great explainer it was a tweet the other day uh, there was this, evidently this dad and his young girl, his young daughter were getting ready to go into the store and dad had put on his mask and the daughter, you know, had her mask in her hand and he goes, okay, so what are we, you know, what, what do superheroes do? And she said, wear masks and she puts it on and it was a wonder woman mask. And I kind of thought that w- that might've been a neat way to get you know, to help kids make the adjustment. you know, whether, whether you believe in masking or not, you know, if, if the school rules are that way, I mean, the school rules are that way, you know, we, we follow the rules, right? So, um, yeah. you know, maybe, maybe making it into a, a game or, you know, practicing, um, you know, I've seen a lot of teachers that said, do not wait till day one to put the mask on them. You know, if uh, equate it to, if you want screen time, you have to wear the mask for screen time, you know, that sort of thing and get them used to it and get them acclimated. It's just like, I hate to say it, Kayleen, but it, it has to be kind of like halter break in a steer. So <laughs> <laughs> you can't tie him to the tree and leave him there. They fish you off. <laughs> well, there is that. <laughs> tie him to the pickup or the tractor for encouragement. <laughs> uh, you know what? I, I feel for folks that are, are making those decisions and, and um, you know, on, on every side, I've got friends that are administrators, friends that are on school boards. My, my fella is a school teacher. 
I will say this, Kayleen, in the last six months, I think you have seen more civic engagement with your school boards than in the previous 30 years. Yeah. People, people actually know who their school board members are now. Yeah, I actually had to go look and see who was on the board in, in Dodge City just to make sure I was on the, the right track to see, you know, who was talking about what on social media. You know, I think you're going to see a rise in civic engagement at the local level coming out of this pandemic, whether it's school boards, whether it's your your city commissions, your county commissions, um, you know, even folks that are wanting to run for state office. Good for them. Good for them. You know, politics is local and the, the decisions that get made at the local level have a direct impact to your wallet, your mill levies your property taxes, um, how your kids go to school and, and the decisions as to whether or not we're going to be open or we're going to you know, require masks or however. These are things that people forget when they're in the hub of the national election. But you know what? That, that comes every two years. Every day we live local politics. You know, yeah. the streets got to be cleaned. The, <laughs> the, the bridges got to be maintained. Local people do it. Yeah, I don't live in town, but I mean, I'm still in Dodge City about every day, and I take advantage of everything that the city takes care of. And you know, the county does stuff out here. I mean, they mow our ditches, and they, which they haven't done a very good job keeping up with the mowing. But that's beside the point. (laughs) We've we've actually had a lot more rain too. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. (laughs) I'm not going to gripe about the rain. (laughs) Well. that brings to mind that we, uh, you know, our former colleague, Larry Dryling, is actually running for state office. Yeah. Good for him. He's, he's running as a Democrat in, in the Hayes area. And uh, best of luck, Larry, because, um, you know, everybody that had worked with Larry for, for 25 to 30 years or so, they knew that his passion was politics. And um, now that he's not in the writing sphere, he can actually go and, and run for office. So, Best of luck to you, buddy. You know, that's not an endorsement. That's not an official endorsement. So <laughs> nobody get your panties in a in a hoo-ha. It's just um, one colleague to the next. Good luck, bud. Yeah. Godspeed. <laughs> well, I tell you what, we uh, we just wrapped up two days of a virtual sorghum and wheat you, Kayleen, uh, yesterday and, and day before yesterday. And I tell you what, it was an experience. It was a learning experience. Yeah. So which was harder, the in-person event or the virtual event? I'm going to say the virtual event is harder on the on this <laughs> end of things because yeah. although there, it's a toss-up, in-person, you have to deal with catering issues, you have to deal with hotel issues, you have to deal with, you know, did the room get set up the way it needed to be and does everybody have their booth space? On the virtual, does everybody have a meal? <laughs> <laughs> does everybody have a meal? Oh, meal counts. Folks, you know, when you register for events and people say, please register so we can get account for food, please <laughs> register so we can get account for food. Because <laughs> there's been more than once where the, the journal crew has had to go get some food elsewhere because <laughs> we didn't yeah. have enough food. Yeah, the journal, the journal uh, team was catered by McDonald's. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, no, but really, though, the virtual event gave us a capability to bring you know, everybody was able to see all the speakers this year. You know, typically we have two or three speakers going on at once. And so you have to pick and choose the room, right? 
this year, you could see every single speaker that we had on, on the, on the slate. And we did it throughout uh, the day. You know, we had a, a sessions that started at nine and sessions that started at noon. And then we had one session on day two that started at five. And, you know, we're, we're trying to do something different here, folks, because we know people have jobs in town. Uh, we know that you have other commitments. And let's face it, everybody is used to Netflixing their lives. <laughs> you know, you, you catch up and binge. You know, you may not watch live TV like we used to. Um, so it's been, a, it's been an experience. Uh, we're going to use the same format for Cattle U, Kayleen, and we're going to tweak some things and work some, some of the bugs out. But I think overall, we had a quite a quite good reception of it. I'm, I'm pretty pleased. Yeah, the, the pieces that I watched of it, there was lots of good questions and people asking questions on the, in the chat function and doing what they needed to do to participate that way. I think, uh, maybe it's, maybe it's us in this industry as reporters, you know, part of being a reporter is educating people about the topics of the day. Right. And I, I get this real passion for our, our U events because we have an actual, you know, we actually get to, to influence people and bring people to the, the stage that can help you make more money. That's, that's really cool and rewarding. So anyway, Folks, if you want to um, catch up with the recorded sessions, those will be posted soon as possible at hpj.com slash S-U-W-U. We're we're cleaning those up now and and editing out the bugs, and we should have those sessions up as soon as we possibly can. And you had a blog post, Kayleen. You had a little bit of normalcy. (laughs) Yeah, I guess if you want to call it that. (laughs) So my husband's been going to rodeos all summer long, which they've been, some have been canceled and some have been still going on. We went to uh, Elkhart, Kansas Friday night and then Winoka, Oklahoma on Saturday. And Winoka, they do the entries a week before the rodeo. So they know the draw and they know how to get the the day sheets out and who's going to be there and how much how much stock they need to bring for the participants. Winoka actually usually has about 1200 added money, which is a decent amount for these amateur rodeos. And they only managed to get $600, $600 an event. And the Ranch Bronx only had 200, I think. And the committee was really apologetic because I mean, Winoka, Oklahoma is ranching and oil field. And both of those industries have been hit hard. And they had to remind these contestants, you know, be appreciative, be, be nice to these committees. And, you know, they, they worked as hard as they could to get this money. And I was really surprised they had quite a bit of entries. There was probably 50 in the breakaway roping, which breakaway roping is huge right now. And they had probably 30 or 40 barrel racers. There was a lot of people in the stands and, you know, it was, it was almost normal. I mean, there was, people talking, there was people having fun and it was nice to see. Good. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of nice that we can have outdoor activities because, you know, if you're outdoors, there's a little bit more air circulation and, you know, a little, a little bit safer environment, you know, <laughs> yeah. as long as you're not bunched up together on top of each other and nobody's licking each other's faces. Okay. But. <laughs> 
I, I say that in all good humor, but I've got friends that that's their greeting. So yeah. <laughs> don't lick. <laughs> well, and then my kids stayed with mom, my mom all weekend and my sister lives with my mom and Tuesday she calls and she's like, well, somebody at my, at my work has tested positive. So she had to go get tested for COVID and she has to self quarantine. She was negative And I think everybody in her office besides the one guy was um, negative. So it's like, Oh, here, have some normalcy. And then here, <laughs> kick you in the shorts. <laughs> well, speaking of not having normalcy, uh, Big 12 announced that they're going to have football. So fingers crossed, this might be the year that K-State's a national champion. (laughs) (laughs) They probably won't even hold the national championship. They'll probably have one of those asterisks next to it. (laughs) Hey, if the SEC can't play, then nobody can play, evidently. Um, (laughs) I guess the SEC is still in the game. Um, Big 10, I believe. uh, Yeah, Big 10 canceled. Yeah, and and a few others. uh, The Mountain Conference. Nebraska's talking about joining the Big 12. Oh, that's the rumor. I don't know, because they want to play. <laughs> oh, wah, wah. You, went- like you, left, you left once, you're not coming back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's hoping that everything goes well, that the coaches, the players, the students, the staff, I, I just say a prayer for safety. I just, you know, safety and and calmness and, you know, do the best that you can be graceful around people. You don't know the decisions that are going on in their lives, folks. So, you know, if you wear a mask, that's fine. If somebody's not wearing a mask, don't be a jerk. If, if you're not wearing a mask and somebody's wearing one, don't be a jerk. Just let it be. If it doesn't immediately pertain to your actual immediate needs, let them be, you know, would you do the same thing five years or a year ago? If you saw a kid in a store with a mask and a bald head, would you, would you look at them and, and, you know, shame them? They might be going through chemo, you know? So if you wouldn't have done it a year ago, why are you doing it today? That's what I'm saying. You know, don't be a jerk. Just, just be a decent human being that that should be on everybody's plan. Everybody's back to school plan this year. Yeah, and and Mike Gundy trimmed his mullet too, so maybe the the world's gonna right itself. <laughs> or, or is that the sixth sign of the apocalypse? <laughs> it could be that too, you know. <laughs> he trimmed it, and it looks it looks a lot better than it did with the. <laughs> and Mike Gundy is the Oklahoma State football coach. So, those of you that don't know who he is, <laughs> he's a man. He's forty. Yeah. No, he's his birthday was actually yesterday, so he's older than that. <laughs> So how are you folks out there? Drop us a line at hpjtalk at hpj.com and let us know. Or call us at 1-800-452-7171. Yeah, drop us a line and let us know how you're getting along with back to school and and a little bit of normalcy. We'd love to hear from you. Also, do us a favor and head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and go ahead and leave us a review if you could. This week's episode will bring you the stories you might have missed in the August 10th print edition We'll have our report from the field with our All Aboard Wheat Harvest correspondent, Bryant Jones. And I'll bring you the latest on the grain markets, and we'll have some final thoughts. Alta Seeds brings you this week's episode. Alta debuted its iGrowth sorghum line July 8th in the first ever Sorghum Frontiers Virtual Field Day online. iGrowth is the world's first non-GMO herbicide-tolerant sorghum that's commercially available in the U.S. market 
enabling pre or post-emergent weed control. Be sure to catch up on the webinar recording at hpj.com slash sorghumfrontiers to learn more about this new trait and the company that's bringing it to your farm. And be sure to check that same website, Sorghum Frontiers, to register for the October 15th second round of our Sorghum Frontiers virtual field day. All right, folks, like we said, it's a crazy world out there, but you know what makes it a little bit less crazy is um, a little bit more grace and humility and love. So let's all practice being decent to each other. And thanks for riding with us here on HPJ Talk. This week's cover story is by copy editor Jennifer Thur, a foundation for expansion. She caught up with Roger McCowan, professor of agriculture law and taxation at Washburn University School of Law recently. McCowan was and will be a featured speaker at both virtual sorghum U slash wheat U and cattle U events produced by High Plains Journal. He's set to discuss succession planning and how to expand farming and cattle operations. McCowan works to help farmers and ranchers plan for the unexpected and maintain the operations and assets they've built over the course of their lives. He also advised them he also advises them when they want to make those operations larger. Expansion timing could depend on when nearby farm ground comes up for sale or a good set of cows is coming through the sale ring. Producers need to be ready when the bid comes their way. The most important tools to build a foundation of expansion are money and good credit, he said. While there are other factors involved, those two are key to open the gate. Quote, have you done the right things for years and decades to be successful in terms of having a war chest to expand when the opportunity hits, McCowan asked. So it was really interesting to listen to him yesterday or day before yesterday on um, on the first session of Sorghum and Wheat You. And Rogers always got a really good hand on the tax issues, the law issues that really affect farmers and ranchers. And I, I encourage you all to check out his session when it gets posted at hpj.com slash S-U-W-U. Um, and again, we will feature him at CattleU September 8th through the 11th. And you can check out that um, schedule of seminars at cattleu.net. But it's... Um, it's something that if you are a forward-thinking farmer, you don't just look at what this harvest is going to bring you or what this calf crop is going to bring you, but you're planning for five harvests down the road or, or a calf crop five years down the road, right, Kayleen? You're supposed to be planning for these things? <laughs> <laughs> well, at least have a roadmap in mind. I know. It's <laughs> not how we operate, but whatever. <laughs> You know, a goal without a plan is just a, a wish. And yeah. <laughs> you got to have a roadmap set in mind. And he's right. When opportunity is is there to expand the operation, A of all, is the expansion right for the size of your family? You know, there is a, a thing is getting too big. And and do you have the the ability to cover the ground that you're gonna that you're gonna bring into the operation? Is it worthwhile? Does it, does it cost out? I mean, is there a return on your investment? 
people don't understand that farming isn't just about, it's not a game on a, on a computer simulation where, where you grab as much land as you possibly can and, you know, plant whatever you want to plant out there. You have to go into it with some forward thinking and, and uh, I always appreciate Roger's perspective. So Kayleen, you had a story inside, People and Equipment Help Small Dealership on the Map. And I, I love this piece because you got to interview Bruce Baldwin and his sister, Kathy, who now own the dealership. Their 93-year-old father, Hayes Baldwin, bought in the 1950s in Calvesta, Kansas. Um, they're celebrating their 70th anniversary in business here this year. And the family believes that the Norton family originally started the dealership in, 20, in 1926, making this business around 100 years of age in selling farm equipment to farmers. Uh, the Norton started off with Gleaner Combines, and Baldwin thinks that they had Oliver tractors too, which I have to say is um, it makes my heart happy because we always <laughs> ran Oliver, Com- Oliver tractors and, and Oliver Combines. Uh, When the business sold in the 50s, the dealership had Minneapolis Moline as well. Baldwin says that his father also had Minneapolis Moline and Gleaner Combines. So you went out there and interviewed them because as a part of our our All Aboard Wheat Harvest series, we wanted to bring uh, human interest stories about our our sponsors. And Gleaner is, Agco Gleaner is one of our sponsors for, for All Aboard Wheat Harvest. So Gleaner was eventually purchased by Alice Chalmers. So Calvest Implement, the, the Baldwin's dealership, became a dealer for Alice Chalmers too. Uh, they've had short lines like Flex King and Noble, along with other tillage equipment. And Baldwin says that um, the, the, the cool part about this story is he actually bought a combine back, the first combine his dad ever sold, the first Gleaner. And Kayleen, it's over, it's a 1950s version. And uh it, it's it's still running, right? Yeah, it's a. I think you said it was a 1955 Gleaner A combine, and he had a. I assume a customer call him and said that I know where this combine's at. It's in really good shape. You need to come and get it. Well, he worked it out with the the farmer that owned it, and the farmer that owned it happened to be one that my dad farmed for when I was a kid, and. It was kind of neat to make that connection because Frank's no longer uh, alive. And um, Bruce said that he was able to put gas in the combine, get it started, and drove it home. And it took him a few days because it kept breaking down. You know, there was rust and stuff in the carburetor. And so it was pretty cool that they were able to get it back and it run just fine. Do you think, and, and they've had it in parade. <laughs> Fetch too, if I remember um, hearing hearing correctly. But do you think your dad actually ran that combine? I doubt it because dad always dad would dad was a John Deere man. <laughs> Probably would not have drove a gleaner. <laughs> and at that time, you know, Frank quit farming in the early seventies, and my dad was still, you know, working with his dad, and he worked at John Deere for quite a while, few years. So. I don't know. My dad probably knew what knew that the combine was around. He probably even knew knew the story. It's hard to say because my dad liked information like that and was kind of nosy, so he knew. You know, I love like I love how we've added a human interest aspect to the fact that we're all in this together for all aboard wheat harvest. There are so many human stories that come into bringing the food, the food, fiber, and fuel from the fields to your homes, and people like. Um, the Baldwins at Calvesta Equipment and, or Calvesta Implement, um, 
when they, when they work with their customers, they make long-term relationships. And the fact that Gleaner has been around for over a hundred years and the fact that they have one of the first combine that their dad ever sold, it's back on the lot as a, as a showpiece that kind of means something in ag country. And um, I'm really excited that we got to, uh, got to tell the story about this special combine and that the family managed to find it and bring it home and, and how we have the Baldwin family. On the opinions and editorials page, editor Dave Bergmeyer has a column this week, what continues to be right for rural America? A letter to the editor comes from Kansas Governor Laura Kelly to the Kansas farmers that feed our nation. Thank you. Another letter to the editor comes from Bruce Schultz of Rainsford, Montana, vice president of the National Farmers Organization titled, Family Dairy Farmers Need Attention Too. Contributor Tim Unruh has a feature titled Mycorrhizal Fungi Help in Battle with Problem Weeds. And I know you gave me that headline so because you couldn't pronounce mycorrhizal. <laughs> I can't say it. Mycorrhizal. <laughs> I just don't know what the heck it is. But <laughs> Well, l- read the story and you'll learn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Field editor Lacey Newland has a story. Radio station keeps the visually impaired enlightened by reading the news. Sight is a privilege easy to take for granted, but even if the world goes dim, everyone should have the advantage of hearing the written words they crave that could spark a light bulb idea. A Kansas program called Audio Reader is a reading written material to bring the words off the paper and over the airway to needy ears. Audio Reader is a 24-hour radio station that puts the voice to print material for the visually impaired. The program also has an on-demand telephone service and special requests special request service to better meet listener needs. Started in 1971 by a Lawrence, Kansas area philanthropist who was reading to a friend in the nursing home. It became her mission to find a way to read to everyone who had difficulty reading. The founder, working with the University of Kansas and a public radio station, started providing the service of Audio Reader. It's currently the second oldest audio information system in the country and is a member of the International Association of Audio Information Services, covering Kansas and Missouri, and is free to listeners who apply. Kayleen, you compiled the results from the recent Dodge City Roundup Rodeo, July 29th to August 2nd, and we've got a lot of your photos on the website, right? Yeah, there's some in the paper, too. Good. And be sure to check out the All Aboard Wheat Harvest coverage this week from correspondents Brian Jones, Stephanie Cronier, and Laura Hafner. You can read more on the variety of ag issues facing farmers and ranchers in the print HPJ or look for it online anytime at hpj.com. If you have a response to something you've read or heard, please write to us at journal at hpj.com or hpjtalk at hpj.com. We want to hear from you. High Plains Journal's Cattle U has moved to a virtual event during the week of September 7th to 11th. Don't miss your chance to hear from the top names in the cattle industry and learn how you can bring more value to your herd. Sessions will target all segments of the cattle business, from the cow-calf producer to the feedlot manager. For registration details, visit cattleu.net. it's time for an update from the field with our all aboard wheat harvest correspondence brought to you by oklahoma baptist homes for children 
Unruf Earth Manufacturing, AgriPro Seed, Agco Gleaner, and BASF. Well, hey folks, this is Jennifer Latsky, and I am joined by the phone on the phone with uh, Brian Jones, our All Aboard Wheat Harvest correspondent. Brian, you are in the one of the last rounds in the last field of your season in South Dakota. How's it going? Hey, Jennifer. Well, we uh, have been in South Dakota for a really long time, so long I think that we've about lost track, but we are on, I believe this is week seven of being here, which I think will be a record. We have never been in one spot this long ever before, but part of that is because we arrived a little bit early, and then now harvest is really drug on just because the weather hasn't been super cooperative. We have had uh, pretty cool weather here. We've never really had very hot days and uh, just some rain showers that were pretty persistent on and off. So the wheat was a little slow to ripen, and it made for getting late starts in some days. So it's uh, been kind of a long haul here. But, yes, we are in the last field, and um, we were thinking just another day, and then that will be the end of harvest. I say last field, but the last field is 900 acres, so it still takes a little bit of time to work through that last field. Seven weeks, huh? Have you applied for residency yet? When these people, are, people around town say that they're like, man, it seems like you've been here for forever. We've gone to church the same place all those weeks and, uh, you know, start to become really pretty good friends with the grocery store people. And yeah, it definitely has been a long time. So the crew, uh, it definitely enjoys our time here. And we know a lot of people that uh, are here um, for over the years. So it's a nice place to spend an extended period of time for, but we are ready to wrap things up and head home. Good. Well, I bet your home misses you too. Now you guys aren't going on up to North Dakota and that's usually where you usually end harvest, right? Yeah, it's uh, a little disappointing this year, but it's not unexpected. It's what we kind of, kind of thought this would uh, end up being and that has indeed played out. There's just so much uh, rain and cold weather that there was just a tremendous amount of preventative planting in the south central part of the state where we normally harvest. So there just wasn't really much crop that was planted there. And a lot of the crop that was um, ended up being some type of a row crop instead of wheat. So there's just very few wheat acres to begin with. And uh, because we've been so late harvesting down here, harvest up there has actually started over a week ago. So we're kind of in that same needed to be in two places at one time. So it's just really an odd year on some of this timing issues, but uh, the weather, that's just the way the weather seems to kind of be every single year now. But we will just be packing things up here and, and headed home, and uh, hopefully next year perhaps North Victoria will work differently for us and we'll be able to make that our final stop next year. Yep. Well, now, what happens on the uh, on the flip side of, of coming back home? What are some of the steps that you and the crew have to go through um, to prep to drive from South Dakota all the way back to home base in Iowa? Yeah, it's a pretty long drive, and uh, it takes uh, a part of two days. We can't do it all in just one day, so there'll be an overnight time spent on the road. There's always just a lot of road construction as well, and there's not really a great straight path home. Um, the interstate system is, is really great, but that's not usually available for oversized loads because of summer road construction. So we kind of have to wind and meander around. So we got to plan our route pretty carefully and fuel stops and just make sure we know a little bit what we're doing. Um, but then we'll uh, we'll get home, and, of course, it'll be nice to see our own 
crops and that to uh, check on our cattle and pasture and uh, some of those things when we're home. We will have to return back to South Dakota, though, for a second time because we can't move um, everything at once. We'll have to come back and uh, snatch the grain cart tractor yet and uh, bring that home as well. So we'll get one more chance to be South Dakota residents for another 24 hours before uh, we wrap this all up. And it's pretty typical that uh, crews, a lot of times, they uh, they aren't able to fight move everything home all in one, one time either at the end of the season. So it's going to be some more road time yet before it's all said and, and done. And then when we get home, we will start working on cleaning equipment and some of that uh, preventative maintenance or repairs that we need to do um, for equipment before we put it away for the season. But the combine won't get much of a rest. It really will just be a few short weeks and all of a sudden the harvest back at home for corn and soybeans and Iowa will begin. So we'll have a, a small pause in here um, and allow us to just maybe have a little bit of downtime too at home. Uh, it's always nice to you know, maybe uh, see some friends, go out to, to dinner with some things, go shopping maybe at your favorite place to do something with. You know, it's all simple things that a lot of people do in their daily lives that uh, pretty much we're all, you know, completely unable to do all summer long. So it sounds kind of silly, but yeah, sometimes just going out to your favorite restaurant or just actually walking through the shopping mall is kind of a fun experience because it's just not something we've done for a while. Well, and you all have been on the road since late May, early or late April? It was. We left in, um, boy, I got to even think back on that, right? It was just in the very first, one of the first days of June that we left. So we won't get quite three months this uh, this time around, but we'll get pretty close. So it definitely has, has been a pretty extended period of time. And of course, while we don't go to Texas and we won't be going into northern North Dakota, there's a lot of other crews that started earlier in the season, and they'll continue to have some other runs um, before they'll uh, actually you know, consider going home, too. So, yeah, definitely uh, some folks will still be out there harvesting for a while yet, and they're away from home for a pretty long period of time. Well, hey, Brian, we ought to let you get back to uh, finishing up those last rounds of the last field of the season. Uh, thanks for being our one of our All Aboard Wheat Harvest correspondents this year, and and um, you know, help helping us tell the story of wheat harvest through your photos and your blog posts and your Facebook lives. Um, I think uh, your Facebook live posts are are just uh, those posts from all of you all are just taking off, and and people are catching them. Remember, guys, if uh, you haven't already done so, go over to the All Aboard Wheat Harvest Facebook page. Like and follow, and you'll get uh, notices every time one of our crews goes live. I tell you what, you've been able to tell the story of the equipment and the people in Harvest um, using those and, and getting some questions from all over. What's what's one of those questions that stands out to you? I think we, I get questions uh, sometimes from other parts of the world where agriculture is really, really, really different here. Uh, you know, South Dakota stock is different from any of the others because of the scale of uh, farming here. Everything is so large. Like I said, we're now in a 900-acre field. We just recently moved from an 1,100-acre field. I know one of the other crews here actually worked in a 10,000-acre field. And uh, that's, you know, for a lot of places, particularly, say, Europe, for example, or uh, uh, South Africa, for example, and those parts that are, have pretty big agricultural, uh, you know, operations it's just on a scale that's so much smaller than this so i think it's always interesting to contrast and compare 
the way that farming is done differently, you know, around the world. And it's a great learning experience. I think sometimes we all learn um, or pick up on something that maybe we would, didn't know about um, from other parts of the world. So I always find that really, really interesting. I, my uh, last blog post that I that I did, which I kind of referred to everything up here as being supersized, I particularly liked, and there were some really great photos in there. So I tell you, if folks really want to uh, to catch up on uh, what's been going on here and maybe uh, see harvest in a little bit of a different way if they never uh, have really thought about wide open spaces before that are in like South Dakota or Montana, uh, check out that all aboard we harvest blog post and look for the super sized uh, blog that I did. Uh, it was kind of fun and I and I think it's uh, probably explains and goes over some things and shows some photos of a, a size of agriculture that a lot of people maybe really have never witnessed before or maybe didn't even hardly know existed. Great. Well, hey, thanks again, Brian, and give our best to the family. You all travel safe going back to Iowa, and we will see you on the pages of High Plains Journal. Yep, you will, Jennifer. Uh, we sure appreciate you guys uh, following along with us and all of our listeners as well. We hope you had a fun time uh, tagging along, and uh, you most likely will be uh, seeing us next year out here as well. So it will be not too long again, and suddenly we harvest creeps up on us again, too. We'll, uh, we'll look forward to doing it all over again next year. There you go. Well, hey, we'll see you on the trail, Brian. Take care now. All right. Thanks. You as well. Thanks again, Brian, for that update. And remember, if you want to catch up with our All Aboard Wheat Harvest crews, visit their blog at allaboardharvest.com. You can also look for their posts in the pages of High Plains Journal each week. All Aboard Wheat Harvest is brought to you by Oklahoma Baptist Homes for Children, Underfirth Manufacturing, AgriPro Seed, Agco Gleaner, and BASF, who remind you that we're all in this together. The High Plains Journal Sorghum and Wheat U was held virtually online on August 11th and 12th. This year, we had two days of a farmer panel with a discussion of our farmers on the top of day one and at the end of day two. Here we have audio from our day two's farmer panel. Well, now, folks, it is time for the hallmark of all of our High Plains Journal U events, the farmer panel. Today we'll have part two, discussing the trends and technologies and the opportunities that we're all looking forward to in the last part of 2020 and beyond. If you missed part one, which we were talking about the 2019 and 2020 crop year and the lessons we learned and the challenges in growing wheat and sorghum, you can catch up with that recording at hpj.com suwu. And joining us today, we have Charlie Haas, sorghum farmer near Larned, Kansas. We also have Kent Martin, farmer and consultant near Carmen, Oklahoma, and Eric Purvis, a wheat farmer near West Ken, Kansas. Gentlemen, welcome, and I will make sure that we get your video to going. Everybody's here. <laughs> well, how I, I first off, I'm going to let each of you again give us a brief snapshot of what your operations look like. So we might get an idea of your rotations and your production methods for those that couldn't join us yesterday. So Charlie, let's start off with you and uh, I'll let you uh, explain a little bit. Hey, I'm a dryland farmer here in Larned, Kansas, farming uh, grain sorghum, dryland corn and wheat. Uh, I do a wheat summer follow summer crop type program. Uh, uh, farming about 
4,000 acres here in kind of central Kansas. Also an Alta Seeds distributor. So I work with a lot of different customers uh, moving uh, sorghum and forage sorghums and stand grasses around central Kansas. Okay. And Kent, next. Sure. I'm from Northwest Oklahoma. I uh, farm wheat, grain, sorghum, uh, among other things, sesame recently, soybeans, forage crops. Uh, operate a Angus Cross cow-calf operation. Also do consulting on legal and research uh, issues related to agriculture. So a lot of expert witness type work on on different disputes and debates. And uh, also serve on the USCP board, the, the Sorghum Checkoff Board and the Oklahoma Sorghum Association. Um, so a few things going on there. Uh, operate mostly no-till. Far northwest part of the state, everything is dry land. Okay. I'm really glad that you could um, carve out some time for us today and yesterday, Ken. It's been it's been real fun to catch up with you, even even virtually, buddy. And and now, Eric, on um, tell us a little bit about what you do out in western Kansas. Sure. So I uh, farm wheat, corn, milo. We raise some pinto beans. We have dry land and irrigated. Um, sell certified seed wheat and um, guess that kind of covers it in a broad stroke. <laughs> well, I know that you're you're a very busy man too, and we appreciate you coming on out and, and joining us. So let's get started. We usually kick off with a topic of agronomy, and we heard uh, yesterday from Romulo Galato and today from Nick Ward about soil fertility and requirements, and, and we also heard from other speakers about nitrogen and sulfur management. So how do you manage your nutrients, your nitrogen, your sulfur, phosphorus, even the micronutrients in your wheat and sorghum? Uh, what do you use for your decision making? And Eric, I'll, I'll have you kick, up, kick us off. You bet. I um, work with a company, I work with Farmer's Edge is who I work with. And we do a um, do zone sampling. Uh, and then write scripts based off of that zone sampling. Um, also some withdrawal rates based on harvest yields. Um, we're trying to look at a lot of different things. Uh, we use a fair amount of sulfur because of our pH here, uh, trying to help. I don't know that we can move our pH necessarily because it's not cost effective, but we are trying to use it to at least buffer our seed zone and and whatever we can there to uh, help us out. Um, we're zinc, zinc was one that was talked about. We use some zinc in some of our products to try to help out with some of the micronutrients. Um, we're using some broad stuff of strip till and putting fertilizer on, but we're also kind of trying to feed it as we go uh, with infurrow applications as we're planting. Um, on our irrigated corn, we're putting applications on through the summer to get our nitrogen all on uh, so that we can spread that out and hopefully get more utilization out of it. And also, uh, like last year, we had a lot of hail and we lost some corn and we were able to cut out some of our applications of nitrogen and cut some of our costs that way. Uh, this year, with the yields looking like they are, we'll probably put another application on fields above and beyond what we planned on. And that gives us the flexibility to do that. 
So before we move on to the other fellas, is there um, your soils at that direction are very, you know, distinct soil type. Um, is yep. there anything else that you're a little bit concerned about when you're, when you're looking at your soil samples and, and what's your, um, you know, your, your benchmarks for you? Um, we look at several different things. Uh, we're watching our phosphorus levels, obviously our nitrogen levels. Um, and we're trying to manage that by zones rather than on a grid or on just a whole field. And so we're trying to look at it at, on smaller pieces of the field and, and manage those more individually and how we're applying stuff. Okay. Okay. Uh, Charlie, I'll, uh, same question, you know, uh, what are we looking at as far as managing your nutrients um, in the Larned area? Um, well, my ground, it's, I don't farm across a huge area, but it's kind of, uh, it's divided into two parts. Part of it, as I get down closer to the river is, you know, we have problems with low pH. Um, so we've run some, done some various sampling um, and variable rated some lime, trying to deal with some of those issues. Uh, as I get to the other side of my operation, we go to high pH as we get into some of the limestone outcroppings. So I need to move part of my pH from one side to the other and it'd be perfect. But uh, I'm a big fan of dry fertilizer, starters of wheat. We're putting a lot of fertilizer down now with the air seeder. Um, I like that program. I think that's really helped our wheat yields. Um, then blue soil sample, um, big fan of starter fertilizer on a planter. Um, most of my nitrogen on dry land, is, it's awful tough, particularly with terrace grounds for in season applications. So most of my nitrogen is going on down on my summer crops uh, before we plant um, in one form or another. We have started doing some foliar feeding over the top. Um, we're having some pretty good luck with that. Uh, you know, particularly in a year like this where we don't have enough fertilizer down, it's an easy way to add a little bit, try and take advantage of this moisture. And, and Kent, um... Let's see if I can if I can unmute you. There we go. Uh, Kent, uh, same question. What are you concerned about there in your part of Oklahoma? Well, I expect Nick Ward and I went through graduate school together, so I expect he he covered everything that we needed to cover. But uh, no, just a shout out to Nick. We had a great time in graduate school together, and we both uh, focused on soil fertility and plant nutrition. So that was kind of my thing. Um, I farm in an area that has very diverse soils that has a pretty incredible transition from the typical red Oklahoma clays to some deep coarse sands. So we deal with a lot of different things. Uh, having said that, uh, one of the first things I try to do is to better understand my ground. I have some pieces of ground that are relatively consistent and some that are highly variable. Some that are flat enough, you can shoot a deer from a half a mile away all the way across the field. Others that are heavily terraced and have that change as you move across that landscape. So understanding those helps us to, to more easily understand how important variable rate and other technologies are for us. The things that we use, of course, basic soil testing to get an understanding of that, uh, along with some grid sampling and zone sampling. We've done both and we've used different tools to help us to better understand that. Then, of course, um, other things that we do, of course, starter phosphorus fertilizer uh, is becoming very important for us to take care of that need to get some early season 
uh, vigor out of some of our plants and crops. Uh, then also using remote sensing to better understand those high nutrient needs. So we use a green seeker sensor. We put out nitrogen rich strips. We try to understand where are those deficiencies, what is our yield potential, and, and what do we think we can really reach with that yield potential. Uh, other things, and I, I mentioned, and I, I know last time on the farmer panel, I stole a little bit of Josh Lofton's thunder by talking about the, the barrel with a hole in the bottom, but that's one of those things that I think about a lot. If, if I am limited on a major nutrient, it doesn't do me much good to apply a micronutrient. Having said that, there are some crops that respond more to some micronutrients than others. So we try to understand that within the crop that we're given and then use that as, as an opportunity to cap out that yield potential. To be real honest, sometimes in our, in our budget situation on our crops, sometimes our focus is the major things. And we honestly uh, bypass some of those micronutrients because the budget says we're going to focus on the big things and we're not going to spend the money on the little things that don't make as much of a difference. Then I think the last thing I would add to that is tissue testing. We'll occasionally do tissue testing to identify those areas. Also try to take note and log where those problem areas are in the field and identify that deficiency so that in the future we can better understand what areas of the field we likely need to create uh, a different application scheme to take care of those deficiencies. Well, now, um, moving on, we heard from Brent Bean a little bit earlier today about the advancements coming to sorghum in the pipeline. And Kent, you are on the USCP um, board, and you've been part of those conversations. Uh, we also heard from Kansas Wheat about the Kansas Wheat Innovation Center and how we've got some advancements coming out of there as far as research projects that are going to be revolutionary for um, wheat varieties. Um, it seems like we are in a sweet spot of, of, you know, a revolution of new seed varieties with new traits and uh, new discoveries, especially in the sorghum world right now, but wheat in the future. So, Kent, I'll start with you. What are you excited about as far as this next era of, of production of, of sorghum and wheat? Well, I, you know, I think short term, it's, it's the stuff I need in the field today. You know, it's the, the disease competitiveness. It's the, um, you know, the, on sorghum, the big one, of course, is the herbicide tolerance. You know, those things that really impact us today, I think, is uh, that's really exciting because, let's face it, a lot of us farmers and a lot of the people on the, the meeting today are really wanting to make it to next year. And when we make it to next year, we'll worry about the next year. Well, then there's the long-term things. You know, we know that the breeding techniques and the, the advancements in our varieties and our hybrids take a lot of time. And, and that's exciting to me because that's the future of our industry. You know, we have to do that to stay competitive. And one of the things I think from a wheat and a corn standpoint that we have to think about is we look at how the advancements are going in some of our other crops, corn, beans. And, you know, in the past, it's been a challenge to keep up in terms of the increase of bushels per acre per year. 
And these advancements, I think, put us on a more even playing field. We are positioned to see a, a difference in that trend. We are what I expect we will see is we'll look back in 10 or 20 years and we'll say, that was the time when we put a different slope on that curve, when we started increasing by more bushels per acre than we ever have in the past. And I think that's what's exciting. Me too, me too. Charlie, um, you work with with Alta. You um, sell some amazing seeds to some great customers all over the country and, and on out, down into Oklahoma, parts of Oklahoma. Uh, what are some, some things that your customers are excited about in the pipeline? You know, the herbicide tolerances, I've never had as many calls about anything as I have the herbicide tolerance in Milo. You know, and we keep like, we, you know, we keep saying, oh, it's, it's a year out, it's a year out. And we're finally seeing it now. You know, we've got farmer demos of it. So they're getting to look at that um, because, I mean, that's just, that's been a problem in sorghum since day one is weed control. Uh, you know, and then the access we have to technology today is unbelievable. Um, you know, I'm overwhelmed with data some days and how to handle it and what how to make the best decision of it. But whether it be things like climate field view, where I can get satellite imagery of my uh, every one of my fields once a week, um, some of the stuff that's available to us now through some of the drone footage and you know scouting stands um, and wheat pressure that you know we can do so much better there and have that information so much quicker than what we've ever had. Um, you know, some of those things I think are really great. And we're seeing a lot more now too on the, the, the cattle program. And they talked about the sedans and the forages a little bit, but we're doing a lot of work with that. Um, for so many years, I sold sedan grass and it was whatever is cheapest. Let's throw something out there. We'll plant it when we get around to planting it and we'll harvest it when we get to, get to it. We're worried about our mila. We're worried about our corn. Um, was treated as a second crop and some of the advancements that are coming there more even in just learning how to deal with the sedan how to get the quality out of it how we can hit 12 15 percent protein with the sedan grass um you know i think that's going to change a lot of the cattle operations um and you know and it's not so much even varieties it's just learning how to manage what we had put some resources into that i think that's where a lot of excitement is going to come i believe Good. Um, you know, that brings to mind, my dad always had forage sorghums. Um, we put up silage for our cattle herd and, uh, I can remember, you know, that was, it was kind of the, the last thing that was on his plate, you know, beyond the other crops, Eric, you know, you are a wheat farmer and, um, and we know that wheat has an uphill battle. It seems where there you're competing for acres, um, we mentioned in the previous session that wheat acres are down 30% since 2000. I'm seriously trying not to take that to heart <laughs> since <laughs> when I started writing about wheat. Uh, maybe, maybe I'm, I'm uh, cursed. I don't know. <laughs> but um, what are you looking for forward to as a wheat farmer um, with some of the, the tools that are now available to the wheat breeders that we've never been able to utilize before? Yeah, so I think there's a there's some real excitement around some of those things. Um, there's some new things coming with some of the herbicide tolerance with the coaxium brand, uh, adding some more ability to handle joint grass and, and rye and some of those things that 
that's good. And there's other things coming in the pipeline. Um, yield potential is is starting to hit this pace where it's really increasing. Um, and even in these tougher years, this year for us was really dry and, and our yields weren't great, but we had some wheats that kind of stood out uh, above and beyond what we've seen in the past. Uh, and, and I think that's pretty exciting. That's It's a little scary too, because if we push the yields, now we don't need as many acres and we've already trimmed acres quite a little bit. And so it's a little scary from that standpoint. Uh, but but I see a lot of positives coming from it in the end uh, that will will help us in the long run. Well, now you're getting ready to start planting wheat here shortly. Um, any you know any week now or so. And uh, how are you planning on giving your wheat a leg up this fall? What are you planning to try that you haven't done to, that something different? I, I don't know that we have anything big on the horizon this year that we're going to try. Um, we actually, last year we dabbled with a little spring wheat and planted a few acres of spring wheat just to see if we can make it work. We harvested the corn off last fall and planted spring wheat in with as dry as it was. It wasn't, I wouldn't call it highly successful. Um, the yields were very, very poor, but the quality really wasn't bad. We had uh, decent protein and, and just okay test weight for a spring wheat. Uh, the, the advantage is it does let us go back to a to a summer crop next year instead of having a fallow period in there. And so I'm, I'm anxious to see how that works out for us. But as far as our winter wheat going in the ground here, uh, here in a few weeks, we don't have any big plans of anything that we're really, we may dabble with a few small things, but we don't have any big plans for anything right now. Okay. Um, Kent, you're, you should be looking, you know, down the pipe at, at, a planting your your fall uh, wheat crop or your your winter wheat crop uh any any changes that you're planning on making no probably not that much i i do expect i will plant more than i typically do and i think a lot of that is the value of the residue um you know i just i saw that value stick out more this year in terms of weed control and you know back when it didn't rain every other day you know, there was a period of time there where we really needed that moisture. So I will plant a lot of wheat for that value. I think the things that I will do will stick pretty, pretty true to, uh, you know, to your conservative production. The one thing I don't always do is I don't always treat all of my, my wheat seed. Uh, I think we will do more seed treatments this year than we typically do. Uh, also saw a lot of value this last year in some fungicide applications. You know, I, I usually evaluate those pretty hard. And so my, you might call it my tolerance level before I apply a fungicide will be less this year than it has been in the past. So I think those things will add value. They're relatively low cost and have the potential of really providing a lot of good return. Um, speaking of seed treatments, we heard from Ruhia Deardall Young from BASF about wireworm control. Uh, you know, Oklahoma, correct me if I'm wrong, but haven't you um, had some problems with some wireworms in that area or, or in parts of Oklahoma? It's usually the fall armyworm, although we are starting to see some wireworm problems. Uh, it hasn't been one that's been, been big in the past. I, I suppose that's going to be add one more thing to your checklist for, for uh, scouting fields. That's right. You got to keep these agronomists busy or we'll get in trouble. 
Never have a, an agronomist with idle time on his hands, people. That's right. Remember, if you want to catch more from this year's virtual sorghum slash wheat you, look online at hpj.com slash suwu. Your grain market prices from Dodge City's Pride Resources on August 4th, corn was down at $3.18, wheat was down at $3.92, milo was down at $3.18, and soybeans were down at $7.92. If you'd like to have crop or livestock targeted news emailed directly to you, sign up for our HPJ Direct email newsletters on our website, www.hpj.com slash signup. Simply select the topics that interest you and you'll receive updates on them directly to your email. Be sure to watch for our wheat genetics issue of High Plains Journal in your mailboxes August 17th with a story from Jenny Latsky. And look for additional content online anytime at www.hbj.com. Thanks again to Alta Seeds for sponsoring this week's episode. Alta debuted its new iGrowth sorghum line July 8th in its first ever Sorghum Frontiers Virtual Field Day. iGrowth is the world's first non-GMO herbicide-tolerant sorghum that's commercially available in the U.S. market, enabling pre- or post-emergent weed control. Be sure to check out the event recording at hpj.com sorghumfrontiers and sign up for the October 15th second round of Sorghum Frontiers. You can learn more about this new trait and the company that's bringing it to your farm. Remember, you can subscribe for free to this podcast at hpj.com podcast. You can also find us on iTunes, Google Play, and wherever you download podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at HPJ Talk for news and commentary throughout the week. And you can always drop us a line at our email, hpjtalk at hpj.com. Thanks again, folks, for riding along with us as we bring ag news and commentary to you. And remember, as Dodge City's favorite lawman, Wyatt Earp, once said, fast is fine, but accuracy is everything. We'll see you on the trail. Dirt road in a gooseneck, saddle up with me. Dry land in God's country, crops far as I can see. 